0: Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Wednesday, February 5th, 2020. Welcome back to the CBS Sports on College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black mat. Norlanda is here with me. And I want to start with trouble in East Lansing. Final score from Tuesday night, Penn State 75, Michigan State 70. So the Spartans lost again inside the Breslin Center as an eight-and-a-half point favorite. They're now 16-7 overall, 8-4 in the Big Ten. More troubling. Just three and four in the past seven games, with three losses to unranked teams and a home loss to a lower-ranked team. Norlander,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what's going on with our preseason number one? Why are they struggling? Diagnose this problem, please.
1: Well, they played Tuesday night, and for our listeners who happen to also follow me on Twitter, I was at uh, I was at the Duke Boston College game, so I did not see I did not see the Michigan State Penn State game specifically, but the previous loss against Wisconsin. Uh, in part, Xavier Tillman was was not reliable, and I did you know, I saw what he was able to do against Penn State nine points, eleven boards, five blocks. He did foul out, so they need him. To, I th- I think for Michigan State to be the team it can be to get to the Final Four, like he's got to be more consistent there. But at this point, you know, to me, Sparty, eight and four in the league, sixteen and seven overall. This is a team that now has no shot at a one seed. I think it would have to win out at this point if it were to get a one seed because the losses are piling up so much here that, I mean, they're what, 11th in the net? They're behind Maryland in the net there. The Big Ten's actually interesting. In the And I just had this stack go up in the court report on Wednesday. What's weird about the league, and we've talked about this a little bit, is um, you got all these good teams. There are 85 remaining Quadrant 1 opportunities in the Big Ten. For the rest of the season, that's more than that's more than the American and the Pac-12 can produce over the entirety of the season. That's just the the next four weeks here in total. The Big Ten has two hundred and eighty total games, and within that, um, I think it has a hundred and ninety quad one opportunities. Shouts to Kevin Pauga of Michigan State. He is a podcast listener. He provided with me that with me with that data. So it's not unthinkable that a Maryland or a Michigan State or an Illinois, if it were to like mostly win out, still gets in the one-seat conversation. But the league's so good that these teams are just going to be taking losses. So um, without having seen the Michigan State-Penn State game, uh, to me, Tillman's got to be more consistent overall. Cash seems to be playing well. And um, offensively, I don't even think that much has changed from last season. I just think now... As we see this team without Josh Langford, it hasn't had for the whole season. I just, I happen to think that had he been on this team, this would be maybe a nineteen and five team as opposed to what we have here now in a sixteen and seven group.
0: Uh, there's no question. Like when you, you go back to when we ranked Michigan State number one in the preseason, it was based on returning three top four scores from a 32 win team that went to the Final Four. Well, one of those was Josh Langford. They never had him, and they're not going to. So that's a it's a game changer on some level. Um, and then the schedule is, you know, I had, I a, a posted the updated top 25 and one on Facebook earlier today and a guy jumped on there and he was like, I don't know why Michigan state's still ranked. They've played a week schedule and they've got a bunch of bad losses. And I'm like, well, they played 10 games that are quadrant one opportunities. Only six teams in the country have played more than that. So I don't know where you get the week schedule stuff. And, I can acknowledge that Michigan State has been disappointing relative to preseason expectations. They've already lost as many times this season as they lost all of last season, but six of the seven losses are inside the first quadrant. You know, they, so it's it's not as devastating of a of a season as as some would make it out to be. They've just been disappointing relative to what they were supposed to be, and they're they're not. You know, they're on a bad stretch right now. They've lost four of seven games. Um, th- th- three of them to unranked opponents, and again, the the, the most recent one to a lower-ranked opponent at, at home. Uh, I, I think Xavier Tillman's a big part of this. He is probably—he is their second-leading scorer, and he is averaging double figures, but he's the only player on Michigan State's team, besides Cassius Winston, who is averaging double figures in points. The problem is he just doesn't get them often enough. And check this out. I went and looked it up just to see if it would— um, if it would jibe with what I was concluding just based on a very surface-level observation. Because he was held to single digits last night. By the way, everybody on Michigan State's team was held to single digits last night except for Cassius Winston. Cassius Winston had 25 points, 9 assists. The four other starters combined for just 27 points. Mm. So four, four starters besides Cassius got 27. Cassius himself got 25. And so I went and started looking at, at, at the recent losses. Xavier Tillman held to I believe it was nine points against Penn State. In the previous loss, single digits, previous loss, single digits, previous loss, single digits. You go look at the entire schedule. When Xavier Tillman scores in double figures, Michigan State is 14 and one. When he does not two and six. And so nothing is as simple as a, a, a stat like that makes it out to be. But it does seem true. When he scores and gives Michigan State a real secondary scoring option, Michigan State almost always wins, 14-1. And, and when he doesn't, and Cassius is the only one out there getting points, uh, they're 2-6 and six in those games. That, that's a problem that um, needs to get resolved, or else their problems won't be resolved.
1: Weirdly, um, in league play, Michigan State, is also terrible when it comes to turnovers. So in Big Ten games right now on offense, it's giving the way, it's giving the ball away on basically one out of every five possessions. It's the worst rate on offense except for Indiana. And then on the reverse side of it, it's only taking the ball away against league opponents 14% of the time, which is second worst in the league, weirdly enough, to Illinois, which has been good. So, again, these stats don't, you know, just because you pick one stat and it's not going to, definitely correlate to uh whether or not a team is succeeding or, or struggling you know either or but that is um uh, kind of a glaring thing with Michigan State at this point and I mean I don't know I, I still like the team I, maybe it's going to be matchup dependent maybe it'll be if Tillman can can get it going um Rocket Watts has some promise but you know he's just a freshman you know Aaron Henry he's good but they they need him to be more consistent it's it's been interesting to see how Michigan State has evolved this season, and if "evolve" is even the right term overall. But when we when we got to the start of Big Ten play, they were five and zero and looking good, and now we look up, to eight and four. And just to give our listeners an idea here, let me just uh, paint the picture in your mind. Uh, you know, it's Maryland and Illinois tied atop the league, and then Michigan State. It's tied in the loss column with Iowa, and with Penn State as as a virtue of that win for Penn State last night. It's no, by no means a lock for the tournament, but that's the kind of win like Penn State going to go to the tournament. Like it's it's going to get there, and that's the kind of win that you could really uh, you could really afford. And If I can juxtapose Michigan State with, say, Maryland, credit to Rob Doster of NBC who tweeted this stat. I'm going to read it verbatim. All credit to him for looking at this. So Jalen Smith, who has become... Uh, like, if we did the voting today end of season, Jalen Smith would at worst be a third-team All-American. He has really uh, become a good player. And Cowan's been great as well. I mean, Maryland has had the benefit, similar to Kansas, of having two very, very good college basketball players this season. But Jalen Smith in particular, in the Big Ten, he's averaging 17.4 points, 10.4 boards, uh, 2.6 blocks. And his shooting, uh, when he does step out and shoot, he's at 51% from three-point range. That's all. That's that's more than two points up from his overall season averages, uh, more rebounds than his season average, uh, a little bit more than his block average and 10 percentage points better than his three-point average's GP. And across the past five games specifically, uh, Smith is at 21 points, 12 boards, two and a half blocks, and 44% from three. So him... Him complimenting Cowan, okay, Cowan being the lead guard, obviously, and and Smith being the big down low, and he's a different player than Tillman, has made the difference in Maryland getting to 18-4, 8-3 overall. The Terps sit better. Right now, I think resume-wise, they're the best team resume-wise in the Big Ten. All their losses are on the road. They're all good. Penn State, Seton Hall, Iowa, and Wisconsin's even a good loss. Michigan State hasn't had that, and so I think that's why we are getting a little bit of separation. And then one more quick thing, even if you want to say – Illinois as well, 16-6, 8-3. and, six, eight and three. You know, Io Desumu is not as good as Cassius Winston, but he's been really good. And Kofi Coburn has been a top-10 freshman in college basketball, and he has been relatively consistent and is just a, a monster on the board. So they've had some good inside-out. Michigan State hasn't completely lacked that, but I think recently it has, and that's why it's slipped in the standings.
0: To tie all of this together in a bit of a scheduling oddity, um, Michigan State and Maryland haven't played each other yet. Um, and they will not play until the day after think uh, the day after Thanksgiving, the day after Valentine's Day, February fifteenth. Uh, but they will play um, twice in a four game span. The first one's going to be at the Breslin Center, and then they'll go to the Xfinity Center. Um, but you look at Michigan State's upcoming schedule. Like, okay, they've lost four of their past seven. This weekend at Michigan, it's a game they're projected to lose, according to Ken Palm. Are they really? <laughs> Uh, they to 71 lose
1: it. loss. Well, I mean, it's a road game, but Michigan, right? Michigan's not in free fall, but just lost again at home to Ohio State. And I know it's a little, a little wacky late, but anyway, continue. I'm just, I'm surprised no, they're it, projected to lose. Yeah,
0: though. no, uh, Michigan has gone like free, they've been free falling for a while. You know, they started seven and zero, beat Gonzaga, still the only team in the country to beat Gonzaga, and now they're 13 and nine. So you do the math on that; they are six and nine, eight. Six and uh, we'll yeah see. no yeah, yeah 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 six and nine in their past fifteen games. How about this? The only team to beat Baylor stinks. Yes, and the only team to beat Gonzaga is like there's a lot of stinky qualities to them. So that's sort of a, <laughs> a lot of stinky uh, qualities. Yes, there's some stinky qualities. <laughs> the Michigan Wolverines. So my my point is that for Michigan State, um, this doesn't get easier. Um, they, you know they are according to Ken Pom, an underdog at Michigan. Next game after that, uh, according to Ken Pom, an underdog at Illinois, and then you got
1: Maryland coming into your place. So, good luck. Yeah, I'll and uh, yeah, no, without a doubt. Um, it, it if you told me Michigan State wound up like fifth or sixth in the Big Ten standings at the end of the season, I'd. I totally buy it, um, with Iowa playing well, Penn State obviously uh, being stronger as we late. We'll see if Rutgers can get some wins on the road there. Um, and then Wisconsin's going to have to continue to win. But, you know, again, the Big Ten weekly. I was saying this last night on um, at the Duke-BC game uh, to Matt Fortuna of The Athletic, uh, who just happened, he lives in Chicago, and I thought maybe the Big Ten tournament was in Chi-Town this year. But it's not. Um, it's in indie, I guess. And I was like, the Big Ten tournament's going to be the one tournament, like conference tournament week is a lot of fun but it's a lot of like okay a bunch of stuff happens on a Wednesday and a Thursday and you just like the game results you dispose of them you try and put all the bubble teams in context if you're not fighting to get into the tournament or fighting to get a one seed a lot of it is just kind of like it's weirdly filler I absolutely love it but it can be filler the Big Ten will be the biggest example of that this season unless Maryland is in a position to get a one seed and it's going to basically be like minnesota michigan maybe indiana purdue like maybe those teams are going to be fighting to get to dayton maybe but otherwise it's just going to be a bunch of teams like jumbled between the four and the 10 line it, it, it'll, it will be a probably a compelling tournament but i don't know what if anything the big 10 tournament is going to mean when it comes to the bracket this year because the league is so good but there's not anyone for sure looking to set up on that top line and so many other teams are going to be comfortably in the field um, I don't know
0: if you saw Tom Izzo's post game press conference. Did you see any of the highlights from that? I did not. Okay, so after the game, he he points out like, "Hey, listen, we're 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 sixteen and seven. We're not five and fourteen or five and twenty or whatever." He said. He said so. Like, it's not. It's it. You know, it, it it's not as bad as it as some people are making it seem. And he was saying all this within the context of his players have been getting. Harassed by Michigan State fans, according to Tom, on Twitter, he said, "Quote: If there's any Michigan State people out there that are abusing some of my players on that on that Twitter, on that Twitter, I'm sick of it." And he said his players have shown him things that are quote despicable. And um, you know, we were talking about it last night on Inside College Basketball. I, I I take Tom at his word. I'm I'm confident there's at least some people who. Um, claim to be Michigan State fans, alumni, supporters who have sent, you know, terrible things in the direction of Michigan State players. But I'm not sure that's unique to Michigan State players as much as it's just that's Twitter. I mean, like as long as Tom Izzo's standing up for uh, people who get abused on Twitter, like I'd like for him to stand up. For me, <laughs> like tell people to stop sending despicable things to me on Twitter because I also get it every single day and I don't ever miss shots or, 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 or
1: rebounds. I'd like to send a message out there to anyone listening um, that continually sends uh, hateful, distasteful, cynical, inappropriate messages to perish on Twitter. Listen to me right now. Keep it up. <laughs> proud, of, proud of you. Out there. no no I'm just kidding. that is twi- that is that is twitter no that is unfortunately it's twi- it, it, that, that's twitter. it is it, listen it's just sometimes it can be a force for a fun community particularly during major sporting events I think it's an awesome interactive experience but there are just way too many people way too angry I had heard well, what player was it I can it's it's escaping me but I heard that there was a player in the past week, like, he missed a foul shot at the end of a game that was in hand. But if he had made the foul shot, that team would have covered. And then the player had all these people coming at him saying, you know, USOB, you just cost me money. How can you miss that foul shot? So it even goes beyond, you know, oh, you guys lost the game. You got guys winning games, not covering. And now because... Uh, sports betting is legal uh, across the country uh particularly digitally that's that's become like another facet aspect of the college athlete experience is if you're somehow responsible in a late game situation for your team not covering and you don't even have to be a fan of that team you're just a person who bet on the game you open yourself up and that you know that dreaded sometimes at mention column to even more harassment it is it is a problem and it's something that I can see actually getting worse in the years to come
0: i um, listen, I understand expressing frustration on Twitter. I, I do it during baseball season when Edwin Diaz gives up a three-run homer in the ninth. But I don't at Edwin Diaz. Like, if you at an athlete, particularly a college athlete, it, to criticize them, you are a weirdo. Like, you're just a, a strange, weird, terrible person. Like, I understand if if um, Xavier Tillman doesn't play well, if you're just like, Man, you know, uh, you say whatever you want about it. That's what Twitter's for. But to tag Xavier Tillman while you're saying whatever—that's a weird thing. But people, people do it all the time. And what's funny, like from our perspective, is I I don't know how much you get of just the nonsensical, crazy, hate-filled comments, but I get them every day. Based on I rank basketball teams every day, every day. I am called a moron, an idiot, an effing whatever. Every day without exception. And what's hilarious to me is that I almost never pop back because it, it just starts an argument on Twitter. I'm not interested in that. But when I can end it with one tweet and expose somebody, I, I'm, and I might do it then. And so the other day, like some guy was um, like, oh, so Florida State lost a game and then they move up two spots. That makes sense. And I'm like, well, that's, these are daily rankings, stupid. The like, Florida State didn't lose a game and then move up two spots. Florida State lost a game five days ago, and the rankings have changed five different times since then, idiot. And uh, and then people will come in and go, oh, Parrish, is the name calling really necessary? I'm like, I get called names all day long, by by all sorts of people. Why? I, I never make, said I'm but a. But does
1: bu- that does that make it right?
0: Yes, it makes it right. Okay. I never I never claim to be perfect. And I never claim to be above name calling. And that's I'll why call your
1: children are cursing you out <laughs> at seven in the morning. It is true. My 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 little
0: boys, when they get mad, they they call each other stupid. <laughs> Or even their older brother's stupid And it's like where did they learn to call people stupid And it's like mm. probably because their dad's walking around Calling people stupid non-stop It's probably because their dad thinks he's smarter Than everybody probably else, walking everybody from, else is yeah, stupid. You're walking from like so the, gotta, yeah,
1: dining, You're walking gotta, like downstairs from the dining room Into the living room, you got your phone in your hand Neck craned down, you're like typing Thumbing out some sort of tweet and you're audibly saying it Don't even realize your kids are picking up on it And then the next morning That happens
0: Yeah, next morning I got a three-year-old calling his six-year-old brother stupid over and over again. So anyway, uh, Tom, if you're listening, um, it is despicable uh, that Michigan State fans are are sending uh, bad tweets at your basketball players. But I think that's just a Twitter problem in the year 2020 as opposed to uh, um, just a a Michigan State problem. Let's move on. Norlander – You just published a 40,000-word story on college basketball players who wear Kobe's number 24. We're going to get into that next, but first, check this out. So Norlander just published a 75,000 word story on college basketball players who wear Kobe's number 24. If you haven't read it yet, check it out: cbssports.com. It's on his Twitter feed. It's on my Twitter feed. For those who haven't read it, walk us through it, Norlander. Why did you do it? And what's the best story you ran into? Why you did it?
1: Sure. It is a. Uh, it's not 70,000 or 40,000. It's a. It's a cool. Uh, 23-minute read, 4,800 words. You can really – you can get this done in about 12 or 13 minutes, though. Uh, I don't know how these uh, these algorithms – it's obviously a word count that determines, I guess, the average person, how long it would take them to read. But, um, but yeah, it's up on the site. Uh, I had a lot of fun reporting this out uh, after Kobe's passing. Um, I, I saw – you know, it was Super Bowl week, and I saw a lot of players at uh, – at media day or media night, whatever they call it for the Super Bowl, talking about Kobe Bryant. And obviously the the NBA uh, tributes kept coming, pouring in and in and in. But I thought, you know, we are probably still, there are probably still college players right now who uh, had their their love of basketball formed in some part by Kobe Bryant. So I thought, well... No one can wear the number eight because you still can't wear eight in college or high school. Do you know the reason why that is, GP?
0: Okay, I'm gonna be honest with you. you I know? had no idea that that was a thing. Zero. Now, I after I read it in your piece, I subsequently Googled. To I was like, why? Well, so why can't you wear number eight? And it's it's because of officiating, like calling fouls, and then showing yes, your hands to the score table. Yes, which, by the way, is stupid. I don't, like, I don't disagree with you. <laughs> like, I don't mean to use the word stupid again so quickly <laughs> after our previous conversation, but it's 2020. Surely we can figure out. Surely the, a ref can communicate properly to the scores table, uh, which player is has uh, yeah. has been assigned a foul without using confusing hand gestures. I mean, the idea, like. I, I think in the article I read, they they put like there's only so many numbers available to college basketball players, right? And like Duke has X amount of numbers retired and another school has X amount of numbers retired. Like there's just a there's almost there's gonna be no numbers left. We need to <laughs> use six, seven, eight, and nine. We're not using a, it's stupid to not use these numbers.
1: You're you're freaking you're freaking out that like these numbers are going extinct. You, you it's like, like numbers
0: another. are going extinct. You saw what happened to dinosaurs.
1: Uh, Same thing's gonna happen to basketball numbers. There we go. Um so basically, yeah and I don't see why you can't even on the first yeah it's it's dumb but it's it's because if you're wearing the number eight and you put up a 5 and a 3, they might think it's 53. It's stupid. It still exists. It needs to go away. Have the closed fist represent a 0 and then a 3 represent the 8. I don't care. The NBA can do it. You can do it at every level, every level but the point is there are no college players that wear 8 because it is not allowed. Now, um, so with that in mind, I thought, well, I'd love to speak with a couple uh, a couple players here who wear number 24 and do so because of Kobe Bryant, um, but I will give another shout and credit to Ken Pomeroy who has I don't know how, but he has the database of every roster. He has to have it given his site, obviously, but he has the database of every roster of every player. And so he um, he just called every number 24 in Men's Division one, sent me that, uh, and had the towns these players were from, the countries they were from. And so from there, I just tried to pick out... You know, I started, I was only going to do like five or six, but then I, I saw, you know a player who was from Calabasas. That is where the helicopter crashed. Um, I saw, I looked, I thought, is there anyone who's named Kobe that wears 24? And certainly uh, there is. Kobe Brown at Missouri. Uh, he uh, And he is named after Kobe Bryant. And he's named after Kobe Bryant because his father, and this is one of the stories in there, I'll be quick with it, but um, Kobe Bryant's father was an assistant at LaSalle. And there used to be a really good high school prospect named Ronnie Braxton. And, kobe brown's father i don't know how old he was but he went to go uh visit kobe bryant's father and ronnie braxton and there was a whole thing they took a trip up there and he watched kobe bryant play in high school and then said if i ever have a son i'm naming him kobe and lo and behold he did and now kobe brown shouts to you you're you're playing at mizzou and that's that's pretty awesome so um so anyway, I picked out a few players, and I there I could have. I mean, there are a lot of a lot of guys out there. The most high profile guy is probably Kerry Blackshear at Florida. Um, the most statistically impressive player that wears twenty four and does so because of Kobe is Aaron Niesmith at Vanderbilt, who has not played for almost a month. He is uh, he has actually turned into. Uh, I think if he wants to go, he will be he will be drafted this season. He is shooting. He was shooting fifty two percent from three point range. Good wingspan, six six. I just I. I'll be surprised if he doesn't leave. But um, but I will say, um, Pitts Ryan Murphy from Calabasas, uh, Yasu Worku at U- at UC Irvine, um, they stood out to me. And then Sacred, uh, there's a player just up the road for me. I live all of 15 minutes from Sacred Heart, which is a small D1 school, never been to the tournament, actually has a chance, might be the best team in the NAC this season. Um, he is the youngest of eight. So eight kids, youngest of eight. Um, has apparently loved Kobe from like since he was like 3 years old before he said he could even remember it he had an older sister Nikki who played for Pat Summit at Tennessee then was in the WNBA played for the Sparks got to know Kobe and so he you know he would hear stories about him and it just it built up more and more and more and more he actually I mean, some of these players, they were just such tremendous interviews. Uh, and EJ, uh, kind of the passion he spoke about this, he said he has friends in New Jersey who specialize in taking shoes and creating designs on them. So in about a week from now, he is going to get a pair of, and I don't know if they're going to be Kobe model shoes that didn't have Kobe art on them, but he's, they are going to be a one-of-a-kind one of a, one of a kind pair. He's going to wear them the rest of the season in honor of, of Kobe, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. And then, uh, real quick, Uh, Corey Kispert at Gonzaga he's worn 24 forever he actually wore it to start because of his father and he liked Kobe but he was actually the one player interviewed who's not like who was not inspired to wear 24 because of Kobe Bryant but I thought his tribute was awesome Uh, it kind of happened you know in some obscurity because Gonzaga was playing Santa Clara last week but he retired the number for a night in honor of Kobe Bryant, uh, he was just he was just not going to wear the twenty-four like he always does for one night. Instead, all these teams have what's called a blood jersey because if you get blood on your jersey, you got to change it and all that stuff. That's been obviously in the in the consciousness of the sport since really since Magic Johnson uh, and his HIV diagnosis in the early nineteen nineties. That 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 changed uh, the protocol there. And the only blood jersey Gonzaga had was fifty-three, coincidentally enough. Five and three adds up to Kobe's other number being eight. So um, some really good stories. Um, uh, you know, Ryan Murphy had some good stuff About being from Cali And meeting Kobe and, and when he was young And all that stuff I think he was the only person I interviewed Who had actually met him In fact He has played Like he His his house was less than Two miles from the crash He has played Countless times Like literally hundreds of times At Mamba Academy um, So he had a, a Particularly Close connection And then uh, Yasu worked at UC Irvine UC Irvine actually is about Ten minutes from where Kobe lived I'll have a story on Thursday um about kobe bryant's connection to that program it's been hit harder there's an assistant on staff uh, who's never spoken publicly about his relationship with kobe bryant but it was extremely close um so I'll, i'll have stuff from him and how he's been impacted um he was actually he was so close with kobe that he did not he did not disclose it um uh but so there'll be more on that in particular uh with the anteaters and uh and kobe that'll be up on the site later this week but Thanks for letting me talk a little bit about it. I spent a lot of time over the course of about four days getting those interviews, and I was really happy with the way it came out. And it just goes to show that, like, I think a lot of freshmen now, certainly prospects, GP, it's been a lot of LeBron infancy, but you see a lot of Harden, a lot of Steph Curry, a lot of KD. The guys who were interviewed for the piece, most of them were juniors and seniors. I think in Ryan Murphy's case, he's 22, um... So they are, I think, the last like mini generation that when they were 8, 10, 12, 14, Kobe Bryant was still playing. The Lakers won titles in 2009, 2010. And so that's not to say 10 years from now there might not be a player who's like an old school, old soul, and heard about Kobe and was inspired by him. But I think right now, like this is him dying now, Uh, you you caught um, the last real big, Chunk of players that were specifically inspired by him, and that they were his—they, you know, he was their favorite player.
0: Um, from my experience, at least, if you're going to be a sports fan, like love something, it usually starts around six, seven, eight, nine in that range, and so you just do the math on this—a um, 22-year-old. Um, when he was, when he was just say, let's say nine, there's 13 years ago. So it's like right in the middle of the Kobe Bryant, awesome stuff, Lakers, awesome stuff. So, um, that all makes sense. If you haven't seen the story yet, again, you can find it cbsports.com or on Norlander's uh, Twitter feed or on my Twitter feed. Um, we're going to get to the mailbag momentarily, but we cannot go any further in this podcast without recognizing Arkansas's Mason Jones. He got 40 in Tuesday night's, uh, overtime loss to Auburn but uh, that's three straight SEC games with with at least 30 points, and the last player to score at least 30 (laughs) in three straight SEC games (laughs) was the icon, South Carolina legend, D.D. Devin Downey. Shouts to Devin Downey. Obviously got 30 points, five rebounds, three assists, two steals, and a 68-62 upset of top-ranked Kentucky back on January 26, 2010. We just passed the 10-year anniversary of – of the Devin Downey game,
1: we did, and, and um, you know our schedules get busy so here. So I had uh, I had some regret, but it just you know sometimes this pod has re- real time constraints. But you'll recall, I think it was three years. Do you remember the podcast like three years ago when uh, I started the episode? With the with the uh, with the broadcast or the radio call of Devin Down, do you remember when we did that episode? You don't yeah. remember. You do remember that though. I I, I remember something yeah. like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was a fun. one. I wanted to bring it back for the ten year, but I forgot about it. Um, not forgot about. It. I just didn't have the time there. But uh, but shouts to Mason Jones. So he had forty again. I was I was watching Duke Boston College play just a horrendous horrendous game, but got a little something for a Vernon Carey piece again later in this week. Um, so I did not. I know the game went to overtime there. That's obviously extremely impressive. Um, now there's a there's a few things, by the way, that that came from this though, because you got Isaiah Joe out. Okay. Right. Um, now Mason Jones has turned into, I guess, Arkansas's best player. Isaiah Joe, a real NBA prospect. Uh, Arkansas losing this game at home, uh, it's a ding, and now no Isaiah Joe like this. Must might have been tracking toward getting the Hogs to the tournament in his first season. Maybe they still get there, but no Joe, is a, is that's a significant loss. Credit to Mason Jones. The SEC player, The we talk about the National Player of the Year um, being something up for grabs. And I still think it is, and that's, that's compelling. Within the SEC, I also think you've got uh, an interesting race developing. Mason Jones, because of what he's been able to do here as of late, certainly has to be involved there. Channeling Devin Downey, no small thing whatsoever. Credit to him. Credit to Auburn, by the way. Uh, it's... I guess maybe classic Auburn, like, oh, by the way, it gets to 22. It wins the game on the road in overtime. But the Joe News and then Mason Jones going for 40 winds up being um, the bigger headlines. But real quick, GP, I'd say right now, SEC Player of the Year candidates, Nick Richards, Mason Jones, Reggie Perry at Mississippi State. Did Mississippi State win last night? Did they, I think they played. No, they, they lost. Played they back, played Kentucky, back, right? Yeah they, right. Against, yeah, they lost against Kentucky. Um Anthony Edwards would not be in that conversation because his team is not good enough, even though his stats are pretty good uh, for anyone thinking that he might be there. And then LSU still hasn't taken a loss in league play. Now, as we record this, they're playing at Vandy Wednesday night. Should get a win there. But I think Skylar Mays uh, would be the guy there. Um, but I think it's actually a, it's a pretty fun toss-up at this point. But those teams, LSU, Auburn, Kentucky, Mississippi State, Florida still involved, Arkansas, see what they can do. Um it's uh There's a lot still to be discovered and uncovered and realized within the SEC right now. Uh, but Mason Jones is probably, Parrish, I think he's at this point, I mean, we're talking about him now on a national college basketball podcast, but I think a lot of people, most people don't know who the hell Mason Jones is, but he is, he is emerging as kind of being that, uh, that big time guy and he might need to continue to be that if the Hogs are going to make the tourney.
0: You miss. Uh, you mentioned uh, Anthony Edwards uh, wouldn't be in the SEC Player of the Year conversation for you because his team's not good enough. On that note, real quick, because I don't think we discussed it at all last week, I updated my mock draft um, um, for CBSSports.com last week, and one of the things I noticed is that when I did the 14 lottery picks, I believe 10 of them are not projected to even be in the NCAA tournament.
1: Yes. So,
0: like, when you look at um, – you know, constantly we're looking at teams like Baylor or San Diego State, teams that are way up there, the top of the rankings, in play for a number one seed. And you go, yeah, but do they really have the NBA talent to go win a championship? Because usually you got to have the NBA talent to win a championship. There's not going to be
1: NBA players in the NCAA
0: tournament. Like, well, the, <laughs> if you
1: just well, by 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 virtue of them being college players, you are correct. We will have zero NBA players in this year's NCAA tournament. You know what I mean? I like, know. I'm be- just I'm just messing around with you, okay? There's not going to be high end
0: NBA talent in the NCAA tournament. Like, let's just go through it real quick. James Wiseman, not in. LaMelo Ball, not in. Obi Toppin, oh, Anthony Edwards, not in. Let's start at the top. Anthony Edwards, not in. James Wiseman, not in. LaMelo Ball, not in. Obi Toppin, in. Cole Anthony, not in. Tyrese Halliburton, not in. Killian Hayes, not in. Tyrese Maxey, he'll be in. Jaden McDaniels, not in. Some dude's name I can't even pronounce. Not in. <laughs> Precious Achua on on you know they're on the bubble right yeah. now. Who knows? Yeah. Nico Mannion, yeah he's yeah, in. And, R- yeah and yeah R.J. Hampton, uh, not in. And Isaiah Stewart not in. I mean like we're just not gonna have. I know. No no NBA players in the NCAA tournament. Uh, Least talented NCAA tournament in history is on tap, Norlander.
1: That is true. And yet you know what? We're still gonna freaking love it. It's still gonna be great. It's going to be compelling. There's going to be upsets because the NCAA tournament can be boosted by high level NBA lottery talent, but it doesn't need it in order to be compelling and to have literally millions of people watch and gamble on it. So it is a drawback, but for anyone that wants to uh, write squawk, talk about how this is going to somehow diminish the NCAA tournament, you are very wrong. It, it's it's just not going to uh, the, the, People are still going to watch. You are still going to have uh, teams that will bring in interest, even if Michigan State isn't a one seed. If Duke is a two instead of a one, you're still it, there. Are still going to be storylines there. And oh, by the way, it's not. It won't be. It won't capture the nation the way Wichita State did. But if San Diego State is undefeated uh, to start the tournament, that will not be an insignificant storyline as well. And I think there's a chance that's going to happen now.
0: All right, let's get to the mailbag. Question number one, and we get these questions from Apple Podcasts. You go over there leave a five-star review. You can type whatever you want to type, and if you ask a question and um, I see it and I go, eh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that, then uh, it, it could be on the midweek podcast. So question number one comes from somebody who has a screen name of Hightower 302. Hightower 302.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So here's what Hightower 302 says. He says, I know that you, Gary, have said you are unwilling to drop Gonzaga because the Zags can only play the games that are available to them in their conference. But at what point does an easy schedule hurt them? Gonzaga is setting a precedent that easy scheduling can help teams earn high seeds. The listener goes on to cite Gonzaga's strength of schedule, which is in the 150s, and non-league strength of schedule, which is in the 260s. And he concludes that Gonzaga is going to get a one seed, even though the strength of schedule is horrendous, which is possibly right. I think probably right. But I, I don't, I still don't think Gonzaga is setting any kind of precedent here. Do you think Gonzaga is setting some sort of precedent that scheduling easy is the way to get a one seed? I don't think those dots connect necessarily. They
1: don't connect at all, whatsoever. Uh, and I guess the question is more aimed at your top twenty-five and one philosophy, which I don't, uh, I don't disagree with. I would just if if San Diego State. Uh, Continue like Baylor. To me, Baylor has played consistently better than Gonzaga. Like Baylor's yet to play a stinker. It never plays down to its competition. Um, San Diego State hasn't lost a game. yet. if you if you get into like mid to late February and you're still undefeated and you've you know you've played at least ten, eleven Quad One, Quad Two games. You've played at least. 13, 14 games away from home on your schedule which is both of those things will be true of San Diego State in about two weeks time if they do not lose another game um, then I have no issue with it but Gonzaga <clears throat> it aims to schedule well it's been hurt by North Carolina the numbers aren't great um, and I and I will say in having some conversations recently uh, with those in the in the selection committee room um, strength the schedule is something that is referenced, but uh, it is not at the—not that it was ever at the forefront of the discussion, but I think because of the advancement of how the sport is uh, covered, critiqued, the committee itself— I get more and more of an idea that the strength of schedule is there, but it is not used or leaned on the way it was seven years ago, and especially not say 15, 20 years ago. So it's not nothing. And again, it doesn't measure a team's strength. It's used as a comparison tool when you have one really good team against another really good team or this team versus another team, because it helps uh, as a frame of reference there. So I do not, you know, I do not think that Gonzaga is setting any sort of dangerous precedent there, and I'm not convinced that Gonzaga's strength of schedule is going to prevent it from being a one seed, and maybe that's a good thing given those numbers are where they are right now.
0: The strength of schedule is the most misleading thing that people reference whenever people reference it. I hate it. I never even look at it because I find it completely meaningless. It doesn't mean what people think it means. And I've gone on this rant before. But like when you are ranked number one in three-point shooting, it means exactly what it means. It means nobody makes more three-pointers, a higher percentage of the ones they attempt, than you. It means exactly what it, what it suggests it means. When you have the number one strength of schedule, it does not mean you've played the toughest schedule. It just doesn't. Like, this is the, the, the uh, example I always use. Let's say you're a borderline top 25 team. Like, you are the 25th best team in the country. All right? Now, follow me here. You play two games. One is against a team ranked 10th, and the other is against the team ranked 150th. Now, if you're the 25th best team and you play those two teams, your record is probably going to be 1-1. One and, one. and the average ranking of the teams you just scheduled is 80th. All right? Now, take the exact same team, twenty-fifteen. You play a team ranked 50th and another team ranked 60th. You're, you're, you should probably go 2-0 in those games. And the average ranking of the teams you've scheduled is 55th as opposed to 80th. So the numbers say the second schedule was tougher. But use common sense. The schedule featuring the game against the top 10 team is the tougher schedule. But it wouldn't rate that way. And as for Gonzaga's schedule, here's the issue for them. They played five sub-250 Kimpom teams in the non-league, and that will kill your non-league strength of schedule. But for a team like Gonzaga, and this is why I don't pay attention to that number, playing a team ranked 150th is no different than playing a team ranked 250th. Those games do not matter unless you lose them, and they didn't lose any of them. So I don't even look at the strength of schedule because, it's again, it's just mis- it's totally misleading. Anybody yeah. that references that is not using a good tool to try to actually – um, determine whether somebody's played a tough schedule in that.
1: I would say playing the 150th best team on a neutral versus the 250th best team actually is a difference. I think that they're now it is it. Uh, it's not a difference no.
0: for a team like Gonzaga. They're going to beat. They're going to beat one of them by 30 and the other one by 20.
1: Fair enough. Um Oh, and also it, the, your your rant for the most part is spot on and then you also have to take into account uh game locations which also matter here and that's why we have the quadrant system which has its flaws you know arbitrary cutoffs i get all of that but it, it's also why um the quadrant system is being used so just keep all of that in mind i was also told that um you know strength the schedule as it is presented and i think this is important for people to to realize here because i think it it should and will change in years to come, but I've been told that strength of schedule as it's presented on the team sheets is the str- it's they're using the net, but the, the way that that strength of schedule number is derived is the same way it was from the RPI, and that's not good. But um, they are constantly cross-referencing strength of schedule numbers according to BPI and according to Pomeroy and according to everything else, so that if you have a situation where The most predominant SOS number is clearly higher or much lower than the other ones. They are essentially discarding it. Now, to me, you need to just bop that out altogether. But I guess that's something they're they're kicking down the road. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you brought that question up here. We are not yet at... You know, True bubble talk, maybe we can get to that on, a, on an episode pretty soon here because we have a crowded field and it is it is interesting. But as we get closer to March and then once we are in March, you're just going to see it on screens, hear people referencing it. I think you hate it more than I do. I actually think it can serve a purpose, but you absolutely have to put it in the right context within the discussion of the teams that you are looking at and have it be one small part of a, an overall profile picture, that's all.
0: And uh, just to uh, put a button on this, the, the point I've made about Gonzaga is, is this, why I won't drop them from number one as long as they keep winning and playing well, is that all you can do if you're Mark Few is go out and schedule as aggressively in the non-league portion of your schedule as reasonably possible and, and then play all the games. And that's what they did. He put his team in the battle for Atlantis with Oregon, North Carolina, Michigan, Seton Hall. He went to Arizona. He went to Washington. He played North Carolina. Now, North Carolina stinks, but that's not his fault. North Carolina was a preseason top 10 team. When you schedule them, you, you don't assume that they're going to be a non-NCAA yeah. tournament team. So he, Gonzaga scheduled aggressively in the non-league, yeah. and they went 14-1 and against that schedule. And they were ranked number one in the AP poll and coaches poll and top 25-1 after the non-league portion of the schedule was done. And all they've done since then is go 9-0. and and extend a winning streak to 15 games. 11 of those 15 wins have come by double digits. So I am not telling you they would have the same record as Baylor if they had to play Baylor's schedule. In fact, I would probably bet against it. But I also don't know that, and I'm not going to punish them for winning 15 straight games, um, even if some of those games are against totally outmatched opponents, because it, it's not their fault. Once the league schedule plays, uh, once the league schedule arrives, all they can do is play those games, and, and they've played them really, really well. Uh, question number two comes from Ryan in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And he says, I'm curious about something. I totally understand where you may have talked about Leaky Blank at some point. But when did camel fighting ever come up? And I bring this up only because I do open every podcast by mentioning camel fighting. And it is not lost on me that there are some people who are perhaps new listeners or even old listeners who just missed it who have no idea why I mentioned camel fighting. Norlander, will yeah. you please explain to the people why camel fighting is part of this podcast
1: okay i'm going to explain it because i'm not even convinced that parish can accurately recall why this is the case um in (laughs) in fact i remember i remember someone a couple years ago asking what's with the shout outs to devin downey at the end of the podcast and you couldn't even remember the origin of that uh (laughs) but we've gone over it so many times i think it's embedded in your brain all right so my first question for you is this gp can you remember the player the origin of this all this remember the player Chris Clements led go. the nation
0: in scoring there thirty point one points per game. It, he I don't
1: I don't know if he's in the G League right now or if he's on an NBA oh, roster, but I he know was he was been, about him. He was he has been he was balling. Is he on an NBA roster right now? You're gonna love this. He is on the Houston Rockets. That is which, so awesome.
0: Which means the Houston Rockets right now have the reigning NBA scoring champion and the reigning NCAA
1: scoring champion. That's awesome. Um, that
0: And how is, who does is James Harden think he is going to take all the shots when he's got Chris Clemens on his team? He's got a fighting camel on his team.
1: He does. And you know what? I love the fact that Chris Clemens, all of maybe 5'8", just confident, cocky, tough, led the nation in scoring, one of the best scorers in college history, and no doubt had a long line of people. Doubting the hell out of him, even after he balled out at Campbell, and it was a shame. Talk about no NBA players in the NCAA tournament. No, the NCAA tournament was worse for never having Chris Clemens and the fighting camels, and that's for sure. But the it fact that be. he's on an NBA roster right now makes me really happy. That's awesome, awesome stuff, man. Um, so the the camel fighting emanates from the fact that uh, we uh, two seasons ago, or maybe early last season, uh, when Campbell was, it was a good team. And Clemens was just balling out left and right. We just started talking about him, and then Parrish, because he just I, I I can't tell you what he does with his free time sometimes, but he goes down a rabbit hole. He discovers that um, they're the camel they're the camel camels, okay. And then I think they were like they were the fighting camels. Or we talked about if they were the fighting camels? I don't remember with all that. But then you start looking about, you start looking up camel fighting, and you realize that camel fighting is a real thing like it happens over in the Middle East and so I think I actually think we've only talked about it on the podcast once before now but then you just decided to start saying in the intro that we sometimes talk about I, I feel like if you want to keep that intro we might need to sprinkle in some camel fighting updates from around the globe on maybe a monthly basis or an every other month basis here because this is the I'm second a- time we've talked about it on the podcast but that's the long-winded way of saying why we sometimes, aka one time, talk about camel fighting.
0: Hey, you don't have to twist my arm. If you want to talk about camel fighting once a month, I'm happy to do it. Okay. <laughs> I watch at least 30 minutes of camel fighting on YouTube one day. I believe. You it. just go, just go to YouTube and Google, and type in camel fighting, and what you will immediately see is camels fighting and people standing around betting on it. Crazy. And it's not as it's not as aggressive as you would think. It's kind of like a slow fight. Like it's not a it's not a great fight. I didn't find it that entertaining. <laughs> I was amazed by it, but I didn't find it that like if you told me I could watch um like you said, "Hey, pick any two animals and you could watch them fight." I I don't think I would pick camels. Kind of boring. I'd pick something like maybe t- lions.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean lion fight is the best fight you could possibly have.
0: What About jaguar fight.
1: Jaguar? Yeah, that's up there. Yeah. Tigers? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Tiger sure. I'd, I'd I I watch those. I love those. I love
1: those animal I love those animal specials, man. I, I get sucked into those on BBC America, Discovery. I, oh, I'm 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 all in on those, yeah, no doubt.
0: Yeah, so um like I, if I were ranking my favorite types of animal fights, camel fighting wouldn't even make the top 20, but if I were ranking my favorite types of animal fights to talk about on a college basketball podcast, camel fighting is definitely definitely number 1. Question number 3 comes from dham 2001 He starts by shouting out South Haven, Mississippi, says his wife is from there. My wife is also from there. But then he says the NCAA does not, Mm. does not deserve a shout out in Orlando. And then he asked the question, why does it take the NCAA so long to update the net rankings? He says Kim Palm updates throughout the day, every night, every day. Why doesn't the net update more often? Norland, you got an answer for that? You're the net guy.
1: I do have an answer for that. Uh, as as I understand it, I'm not saying this is how it should be, but as I understand it, um, there are one or two people that actually are in charge of, on a daily basis, uh, making sure all of the NCAA uh, record books, digitally and, and otherwise, are updated. And I think it <laughs> it requires... Uh, some sort of refresh, like in the morning. I think they, I think they double check to make sure before they uh, refresh and pub. There's a couple of spots where you can go and get the the NCAA's net rankings as they as they refresh uh, daily. But they get better at this. Just so you know, uh, when we get into March, like the week of the conference tournaments, the net rankings update practically hourly. When there's way more attention on it and People are much more invested in it. As for now, I think the NCAA just doesn't see a need at 7:45 at night, or 10:45 at night, or midnight to update the net rankings. When, for the most part, as someone who does check this daily, um, those are refreshed, and uh, the new rankings usually now at this point are published by about 11 a.m. But I get I get the uh, I get the complaint there. They are not automated, and uh, they certainly should be. And you know, the people at Google have helped build the net rankings. And you can't tell me that that you can't get that done. So it's a legitimate complaint. But uh, that's the reason why it it happens the way it happens. If it was up to me, it wouldn't happen like that. But that's what we're stuck with.
0: And let me give a shout out to the guys, the people who run CollegePollTracker.com, Because if you are looking for a place that updates um, with the net rankings every day, and also has incredible quadrant breakdowns, like it's all there, plain to see, um, you can get that uh, via collegepoltracker.com. I think when you hit net rankings, it then redirects to bracketologist.com. But either way, it's, uh, it's all there. And it's, it's, obviously, I use College Poll Tracker to do the Politext column every Monday. But I also use the website every single day to, to sort through quad, quadrant stuff and, and help me try to put together a somewhat sensible top 25 and 1. So if you were looking for even a more detailed break, breakdown than what the actual net rankings provide, um, you can get that at Bracketologist. Um, We've got a triple header on CBS Sports Network tonight. I'm going to be in studio here in New York. And the middle game is Temple at Memphis. Tigers on the bubble now, missing two of, their best, uh, two of their top three scores from the opening day roster. If you just go look at the Memphis season stats right now, two of the top three scores are probably gone for the season. James Wiseman definitely is. DJ Jeffrey suffered a knee injury. Probably is. I bring this up, A, because we're trying to preview CBS Sports Network's triple header tonight. But B... Norlander, can you think of any other relevant team that's lost two of its top three scores midseason? This season? Yeah.
1: Um, Two of the top three? No. Yeah, I think uh, that's it. I don't think so. I'm I'm trying to scoot through my head real quick here. Uh, I don't think that's the case. There's probably a a relatively good mid-major team that's done it, and someone will certainly let us know and call us stupid on Twitter because of that. But I'll call them stupid back. I know you will. I don't think. No, I really don't think that's happened. Two of the top three, I'm looking right now, I'm just, I'm just scooting down, and I can't see where that's been the case. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's part of, the, part of the reason why the team's where it is right now.
0: Right. And, like, so every time they lose Memphis, like, because people connect me so quickly to Memphis, yeah, it's like, so oh, what, ha- what what's – What's going? Whoa! Well, what happened to your boy Penny? I'm like, well, he lost two of his top three players to, to, to like midseason. Like, what do you mean? What happened? Like, the, you know who else lost two of their top three players? Uh, the Golden State Warriors. Look what happened to them. Uh, you know, when you lose two of your top three, it, it it has a real impact. North Carolina lost one, and they got a losing record now. So anyway, if you want to see the shorthanded, um, bubble-centric Memphis Tigers, that's the middle game tonight. On CBS Sports Network. We got a triple header and then we'll wrap everything up on inside college basketball at the end of the night. Shouts to Devin Downey, shouts to Chester, South Carolina, shouts to Mason Jones, shouts to Terry M. F. Antigo, he's a legend, shouts to Larnell. And please go subscribe to the ION College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcast. Rate it favorably, five stars, nice comments, and then we will talk to you again on Friday. Preview the weekend. Till then, take care.